0: If you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to the Gospel of John chapter 21. The Gospel of John chapter 21. This morning we come to our last message in our Gospel of John series and what a journey it has been. A journey that has called us each and every week to true, to deeper, to lasting faith. And just a little recap this morning. John 1 through 12 records the public ministry of Jesus to Israel, really to unbelieving Israel. John 13 through 17 records Jesus' private ministry with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, just pouring into them. And then John 18 through 21 records Jesus' universal ministry to all humanity through his death and resurrection. Yet, if you were to only read up to John 20, verse 31, The average reader would conclude that John completed his book with Jesus rising from the dead, with the dramatic testimony of Thomas to Jesus, my Lord and my God, and with a declaration that John wrote this gospel so that we might believe in Jesus and have life in his name. Now that's a great place to stop. But then John keeps going. He doesn't stop there, and the reader would wonder why John would even add another chapter. And as we're going to see this morning, the main reason that John kept going is because of the Apostle Peter, meaning, John did not want to end his gospel without telling his readers that Peter was restored. That's because the gospel is not just about Jesus' story, it's about our stories. As well, Everything had, had changed with Jesus rising from the dead, but it had not yet changed for Peter. And the gospel was incomplete, according to John, until Peter had had the resurrection of Jesus and his forgiveness applied to him. Think about the word restore. If you were to go home and type that into your internet search engine, whatever it might be, you would... See, many links would appear. You could find information about how to restore a classic car, how to restore an old piece of furniture, how to restore a a home, even how to restore an antique piano. Every restoration project involves more than just making something look nice on the outside, though. A restored ship has to be seaworthy. A restored car must be drivable. A restored house must be able to become a home. And to restore something is to bring it back to its original or intended use. So follow with me. To to restore something is to bring it back to its original or intended use. And according to the word of God, Genesis 1, we all have an intended purpose. We are imago Dei. We have been made in the image of God and called to take God's glory, to spread it into the world. And... We have all failed in that purpose. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And these failures, these moments of failure are powerful and they can loom larger the longer that we see them in our rear view mirror. In fact, our failures in the past can not only affect our present, they can affect our future. And if we're not careful, we can easily fall into despair and allow our failures to define us. With the question hovering over us, can we be restored? Can we be forgiven? I'm going to take you back to a great year. The year was 1987. The young Micah Strickland was 12 years old. And for Christmas, he received from Santa a Nintendo. It was fantastic and amazing. The original Nintendo had two buttons on the console, a power button and a reset button. The Nintendo that I got that year came with a Super Mario game. So that was kind of where I put my effort at first. But when Super Mario did not go the way that I wanted it to go, you could just hit the reset button and start over. I did that many, many times on my way to to victory. But the, the problem is, oftentimes, if we're not careful, we confuse restoration with reset. Meaning, if we can just start over, then... And our minds will just hit reset button, and we'll do better the next time, and better the next time, and better the next time after that. Meaning, it's still us that's navigating everything, and somehow we think that it will end differently the next time. Yet, thanks be to God, He gives us something better than a reset. He gives us restoration. He makes us what we're not. He makes us His, and He makes us usable. He makes us that. So in what is probably one of the most personal moments of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, this morning we consider the restoration of Simon Peter. Peter was a man now humbled and embarrassed, and yet he finds hope and he finds a future in a conversation with Jesus who knows all of Peter's story, who knows everything that Peter has done, and yet he chooses to restore Him and chooses to make Him useful again. So we're going to read this morning, John chapter 21. If you're able, we're going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. And let's read this chapter Together in closing our series. And John writes, after this, Jesus revealed himself again. So after this, after what? The resurrection. He reveals himself again. And the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, also could be the Sea of Galilee, same thing. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast a net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word and we come to this beautiful picture of restoration. And as we're going to see, Father, Peter's story can also be our story. I pray today that, Lord, you would restore any who need your restoring forgiveness. This day, that you would speak in ways, Lord, to glorify your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So even though we're seeing Peter here after the resurrection, I want you to just think real quick A few days, maybe a couple weeks before. And just see this former prideful apostle in the shadows. He had once walked on water. He stepped right out of the boat onto the lake, walked on water. He'll soon, at Pentecost, fearlessly preach to thousands. But on the night that Jesus was arrested, the one who stepped out on water was now hiding. The one who will speak powerfully was in pain. He was weeping, not sniffling, not whimpering. He was bawling. He was weeping. But we don't know what what hurt him more, the fact of what he did or the fact that he said he would never, ever do it. Denying Christ the night of his betrayal was enough, but did he have to boast that he wouldn't do it? And one denial was pitiful, but three? Three denials were horrific. Just imagine Peter hiding, and now imagine Peter fishing. Just follow with me here. We might wonder why Peter and his disciples, after the resurrection, why did they go fishing? Now, we know why they're in Galilee, because Matthew 28 says that they were told that they would meet Jesus in Galilee. Yet, the arranged meeting spot was a mountain, not the sea. So, if the followers were to meet Jesus on a mountain, why in the world are they now on a boat? Besides, didn't Peter quit fishing? is that what we read? Didn't he drop his nets a few years earlier when Jesus told him, I'm going to make you fish for men? We haven't seen Peter fish since, and we won't see him fish again after this. But the question is, why is Peter fishing now? Especially now. Jesus had risen from the dead. Peter had seen the empty tomb. Who can fish at a moment like this maybe they were hungry perhaps that's the sum of it they had to eat their stomachs were were growling so they said we're going to go fishing or maybe for peter all of this was born out of a broken heart you see peter could not deny his denial he could not deny what he had done jesus had returned but peter had to wonder After what I did, can I ever be a part of Jesus' ministry again? Can I ever be useful to him again? So this morning we're going to look at three parts of Peter's restoration. And what I pray that we see is that praise be to God. Peter's story can become our story. Peter's story can be ours. So the first truth is this. Peter was restored by the grace of Jesus. Jesus. He was restored by the grace of Jesus. So seven of the 11 remaining disciples go fishing, which is kind of crazy. If you read, if you read the first two verses, it's, it's wild because John tells us that seven went fishing, but he only includes five names. Can you imagine me and the other two disciples? It's like, hey, we were there too. It's like seeing a picture on Facebook that you were in, but yet somebody cuts you out. And you're like, I'm right there to the right. That's my hand. And yet somehow you cut me out of the picture. Well, that's what John does. He cuts these two out for whatever reason. But seven of the 11 remaining disciples decide to go fishing. They fish all night. So in that day, you would fish at night so that you in the morning could take your freshly caught fish to the market, sell them immediately. But they went out. They fished all night. They caught nothing. Peter, in this moment, tried to go back to his old life, but it wasn't the same anymore. Have you ever tried to do something apart from Jesus and in your own strength, and you failed? It's almost as if apart from Jesus we can do nothing. Maybe Jesus might have even said that earlier. So Jesus, now who unbeknownst to the disciples is on the shore, he asked these professional fishermen an embarrassing question that he knew the answer to. How many fish did you catch, guys? And why would Jesus, the omniscient one who knows the answer, why would he ask them this question? And the answer is so that they would admit their failure and they would recognize their need ultimately for him. And I absolutely love that Jesus gives fishing advice to these fishermen. Jesus didn't grow up a fisherman. He grew up a carpenter. Jesus didn't grow up on the Sea of Galilee. He grew up in Nazareth. And yet this carpenter, carpenter is given fishing advice to fishermen. And well, think about it, he should. He should because he knows more about fishing than they do. Now, why do I say that? Because he made the fish. Amen. He made the fish. So Jesus tells them, just follow with me here, the ludicrousness of this. Jesus tells them to cast their nets on the right side of the boat. How many times that night, I wonder, had they cast on the right side of the boat? Then the left, then the right, then the left, then the right again, all to no avail. The right side of the boat was seven and a half feet away from the left side of the boat. So Jesus' big ask to them is take your nets, lift them up, move them seven and a half feet, and you'll have fish. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but the disciples, they have nothing to lose, so they do it. And their nets become And they can't pull the fish in. Upon being told that it's Jesus by John, Peter puts on his outer garment, which is kind of weird when you think about it. If I was going to jump in, I'd take off my clothes and jump in. But no, Peter puts on his outer garment because that is a sign of how you greet people in that day. You never greet people in your underwear. You always have to have your clothes on. So that is what Peter is doing and putting his outer garment on. He jumps in and he swims to shore over A hundred yards. Yet what defines Peter in these verses, don't miss it, is exhausting effort. He's hauling nets. He's swimming a hundred yards with his garment on. And let me just say this this morning, and please hear this. When we say restored by the grace of Jesus, grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. To think that we can earn something through our effort. And the contrast in this chapter is between Peter's feeling that he needs to prove himself and Jesus' invitation to him just to come. Because Jesus is not asking Peter to earn anything. He doesn't even need Peter's fish. Jesus is the one that came to Peter. He called to Peter. He prepared a table for Peter. But Peter doesn't get any of that yet because Peter only gets half of the gospel. If you remember back to Luke 5, in fact, we read that this week in our Bible reading. This was not the first time that Jesus had done the whole cast your net on the other side of the boat thing. When Jesus first called Peter, Peter had fished all night. And Jesus said to him, put out the boat, put the nets down. And Peter says, Jesus, I've done this all night. I'm the fisherman. The fish just aren't here. But because you said it, I'm going to do it. Basically, I think it was, I'm going to do it to prove you wrong. To prove that you're not the fisherman in this situation. Puts the nets down, fish everywhere, nets breaking. And then Peter immediately thought about the glory it must be, the glory within this man to be able to do what he did. And Peter fell down and said to Jesus, depart from me for I am a sinner. So seeing the glory of Jesus made Peter then want to run away. Yet now, seeing the glory of Jesus makes Peter want to jump in the water and draw near. Listen, that is the beginning of the gospel, brothers and sisters, that our sin doesn't no longer make us run from God. Because of his love and because of his tenderness and compassion, our sin makes us want to run to him. And receive the forgiveness that only he can give. How do you know whether you understand the gospel or not? It's what you do when you sin. If you truly understand the gospel, you run to him. You run to him. If you don't understand the gospel, you run from him. Peter gets that now. But he's still not yet resting everything in that. And then think about these 153 fish. So these fish, now in the Sea of Galilee, are called the St. Peter fish. Anyone anyone want to guess what kind of fish they are? Tilapia. So you will, Tilapia, St. Peter fish, 153 of them. And some ask, is there any significance to that number? And we got to be very, very careful, because there's some who take numbers, every number in the Bible, and think it means something and has to... to, uh, Dive deeper in it. Now, I'm not one of those. If you are one of those, just don't bring every number to me. But Jerome, one of the early church fathers from the fourth century A.D. said this, that the number 153 represented the number of species of fish in the world at that time. And the significance being that Jesus was recommissioning his disciples, Peter, to catch fish, not fish the type of fish in the sea, but men. And Jesus commissioned them not just the Sea of Galilee, but to go into all the world, all species of men. Anyway, back back to the text. If you look with me at verse 12, you'll see on the screen, it says, Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. It's an invitation. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, hear this, and took the bread and gave it to them. We've read that before, haven't we? When Jesus, sitting at the table, took bread, gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I love it that there is no rebuke here. There is no condemnation. Jesus didn't stand on the shore and say, guys, I cannot believe you. I can't believe you. Here we are again. I told you to meet me on the mountain, and here you are in a boat on the sea. Are you kidding me? Will you ever get it? That's not what Jesus says. Now, he should. That's what I would have said. But not Jesus. None of that. Instead, Jesus gives them a precious invitation. This is the Lord saying, come and fellowship with me come and experience my presence come and experience my provision jesus made them breakfast and i love the grace of jesus here because even though the bible says that jesus already had fish on the charcoal jesus also said to peter hey go ahead and bring a few of your fish as well and often in my mind wonder like jesus can make fish however he wants to so i'm wondering if like jesus had like chilean sea bass laying there and he says peter go ahead and bring your little Floppy tilapia um, over here. Just add them to what we already have. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus didn't need Peter's fish. But he was willing to accept them. And then understand this. Yet Peter wouldn't have had his fish without Jesus. So the only thing Peter was able to bring to Jesus is what Jesus had already given to him. Don't miss the grace of Jesus here. Here. So what we see here is a continuing relationship orchestrated by Jesus, by grace. Peter was restored through the grace of Jesus. But then secondly, Jesus or Peter was restored through the love of Jesus. Restored through the love of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said that a man's repentance should be as notorious as his sin. Meaning, Peter denied Jesus publicly three times. It's only fitting that Peter would be restored publicly. And only twice in John's gospel do we read about a charcoal fire, one in chapter 19, verse 18, and one here. The first is when Peter denies Jesus three times, and the second is here when Jesus restores Peter basically three times. The smell of charcoal had to be, before that moment, a reminder of Peter's guilt and his failure. But moving from that day, it would be a soothing aroma of his forgiveness. That he had been forgiven. And just follow with me here in this text, beginning at verse 15. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved, the Bible says, because Jesus had asked him three times, and he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. I want to flesh out two things here. First of all, what did Jesus mean when he asked Simon, Do you love me more than these? Now, these could refer to a number of things. He could have been saying, Simon, do you love me more than you love your nets, your boats, your fish? Meaning, Simon, do you love me more than you love your occupation? That's a great question to ask in today's world, right? Do you love Jesus more than you love doing what you do? Do you love Jesus more than you love your identity in doing what you do? Maybe the second option, Jesus could have been saying, hey, do you love me more than you love them? Like, you love them, I know you love them in a brotherly kind of way, in a brotherly fighting kind of way, but do you love me more than you love them? Now, the third option is the probably the most common accepted option, is that Jesus, in saying these, meant... Do you love me more than they love me? And the reason most people believe that is because that's exactly what Peter claimed. When Jesus said, All of you will betray me, Peter stepped up and said, Listen, Jesus, they might betray you because I know them, but not me, because I love you more. That's what Peter had claimed. He had claimed in that moment, I love you more. And just notice the question. The question isn't, Peter, Do you know me? Even though Peter had denied that he even knew the Lord. That's not the question. The question wasn't, Peter, what do you theologically believe about me? That wasn't the question. It wasn't even, Peter, will you work hard for me? The issue here is an issue of love. Do you love me, Peter? Because everything begins with that. The Lord, hear this, the Lord Jesus wants your heart before he wants anything else. Before he wants anything else, and that's the problem. We want to give him our hands, our feet, our mouth, and we want to hold back our heart. Once the Lord has your heart, he will have your mind, he will have your hands, he will have everything else of you. But it begins with your heart. The second thing I want to flesh out quickly are the words used here for love. There's an interesting play on words here that we don't get in the English. In the Greek, there are many different words for love. The three main ones are agape love, which is God's love for us, phileo love, which is Philadelphia, brotherly love and affection, and then eros love, which was kind of erotic. So two of those words are used here. When Jesus asked the question, Simon, do you love me? He uses the word agape the first two times. It's the highest form of love. Agape means unconditional, sacrificial love as God himself loves us. This type of love involves total commitment, no holding back. For the sake of understanding, let's call agape love today super-duper love. So basically what Jesus says is, Simon, do you super-duper love me? That's the question. And Peter answered him and said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, when Peter used the word love, he uses a totally different word. He didn't say, I agape you. He says, now I phileo you. It's a brotherly love, a brotherly affection. So this is how it goes. Peter, do you super duper love me? And Peter says, yeah, I kind of sort of love you. Just think about this. Peter was fully aware of his failure. Therefore, he refused to claim the highest quality of love. Peter was now a broken man, humbled by his denial. Peter's now thinking, I'm not going to dare confess that I love him like that because I know what I'm capable of. I know what I can do if I'm not careful. So Peter uses a less lofty term for love. So here's how it goes. Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? Peter says, I phileo you. Peter, do you agape me? I phileo you. Now look at the third question in verse 17. Because there's a change in vocabulary. Jesus now, in asking the third question, doesn't use the high word of agape. Now he descends to the words that Peter was using. So Jesus now says the third time, Well, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter is grieved for two reasons. first is that Jesus would ask him three times, pointing back to the fact that Peter had denied Jesus three times. But I think also he's grieved because Peter, now, he has no more confidence in his love or dedication for Jesus. He knows what he's capable of. He knows that he could fail him. So Peter has lost his confidence in his love for Jesus. But, hear this, he will learn to trust Jesus' love for him. Because, get this, we love him only because what? He loved us first. We don't make him love us. We don't make him stop loving us because we never made him start loving us in the first place. It's the beautiful picture of the gospel. And though grieved, I love Peter's words because Peter says, Lord, you know everything. And I love that because just a few days before, Jesus had said, Peter, guys, you're all going to deny me. And Peter says, Lord, you don't know anything. You don't know anything, Lord, because I'm not going to do that. I mean, think about that. Think about Peter said, Lord, you know nothing because you don't know how much I love you and I'll die for you. Now, Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. Jesus knows the worst about us, brothers and sisters, and he still loves us. If he didn't know everything about us, then we might fear that someday he'd come to know all of who we are. And he would say, I didn't know that about you. I didn't know what you're capable of. But now that I know that you're capable of that, I don't think I want to love you anymore. But thankfully, Jesus knows everything about us and he still chooses to love us. Or, As I say oftentimes around here, Jesus died with his eyes open, fully aware of who and what we are. And he loves us us anyway restored through the love of Jesus which gives us a love for Jesus and then lastly number three Peter was restored to a life that follows Jesus a life that follows Jesus and not only is Peter restored and given a restored purpose when Jesus says feed my lambs or feed my sheep there is more In verses 18 and 19, we read, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. According to one church historian, Eusebius, Peter lived his life, and at the very end of his life, he was bound and he was brought to Rome to be crucified. They stretched out his arms on the cross, and Peter said, Can you please give me one last request? Crucify me upside down because I am not worthy to die the same death that my Savior died. So they crucified him upside down. That was his death and some of you are thinking man Jesus what a bummer that the end of John is Jesus saying Peter you're going to die but don't miss this this would probably be encouraging for Peter because Peter was the one that had previously, previously said Jesus I'll die for you they might not but I'll die for you and what Jesus is saying is here here's this Peter you will die for me you will die for me you will do exactly what you said you will do but it won't be now it'll be when you're older So you have comfort in that. Go and do the work that I've called you to do. And just think about the command that Jesus gives to Peter here at the very end that we see twice here. The words, follow me. We see them in verse 19 and verse 22, both to Peter. They're not the last words that Jesus gives before his ascension. We read those in Acts 1. But they are, don't miss this, Jesus' last words in the Gospel of John. The last words Jesus utters in the Gospel of John are, follow me. It's interesting that Jesus is basically his first words pretty much in the Gospel of John were the words, follow me. Follow me. This is basically a memory trigger. Have you ever had your memory triggered by maybe a smell? You smell something, or food comes, and it takes you back to your grandmother's kitchen, or a song comes on, it takes you back somewhere. It's a memory trigger in our minds. Well, that's exactly what is happening here. There's a trigger that is that is happening in Peter's mind, taking him back to an earlier event where Peter was called by Jesus on the same shores, the Sea of Galilee. Remember, Jesus called Peter and says. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now Jesus says, Follow me, and I will make you a shepherd of sheep. Follow me, and I'll make you a shepherd of sheep. Follow me. Jesus never tells Peter to follow John. He never tells Peter to follow Thomas or James or Andrew. Not that anybody would. Jesus says, Follow me. And that's what Jesus would say to all of us this morning. Follow him. And the word follow here, don't miss it, is in present tense. It means continually, actively, perpetually following Jesus. It doesn't mean you start, you stop, you start, you stop, you rededicate, you stop, you start again, you stop, you rededicate, you do it again. No, you follow him continually. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Yes, we follow him imperfectly. It's who we are. We follow him imperfectly, but we will follow him continually. When we fall, we get up. He gets us up, and we keep following him. We keep following him. That's what Jesus will restore us to. To sum up this wonderful passage, Peter denied Jesus in the big city of Jerusalem, and now Jesus restores Peter at the Sea of Galilee. Peter denied Jesus at night. Jesus is restores him at night. Or during the day, three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times now Jesus affirms Peter. He failed, and by the grace of Jesus, by the love of Jesus, Peter was restored. If you were to boil down the Christian life down to one irreducible minimum, like the minimum of what it means to be a Christian, it would be this. Follow Jesus. That's the minimum of what it means to, to be a Christian. Are you following Jesus? Everyone is following something or someone. Some people are walking in the footsteps of their family, whatever that looks like. Others follow a pattern of belief that they created in their own minds or, or in their own hearts. Others are following the road that leads to self-advancement, whatever that looks like. Others are following the the. Road that leads to whatever the world tells you will lead to happiness. And they're following that as fast as they can. But the question for us today is, how about us? Who are we following? Are we following Jesus? Are we listening to what he is saying? Are we responding to his request? Are we working with Jesus? Or really, are we letting him work in us to accomplish his plans? Are we following him and seeing him fulfill his destiny for us? Here's a question today for every single one of us. Where are you in your journey with Jesus? Are you closer than you were this time last year? Are you further away? And Let me say something very clearly, very clear for all of us today. If you are further away from Jesus than you were this time last year, it's not him that moved. Amen. He didn't move. We move. We're the ones who fall back or begin to follow at a distance. Where are you in your journey of him? And maybe you, like Peter, are hiding in plain sight, but you're hiding. You failed him and you're wondering, how will he respond to me? Can I ever be used by him again? Maybe you would hear that and you would say, that's good for Peter. It's good for everybody else, but you don't know what I've done. Well, Jesus does. And he died for what you've done. Every bit of what you've done, and he is able to use you. I want to end today with the words of Max Lucado, and he says this. You'll see on the screen, he says, No one, no one makes it through life failure free. No one, I haven't, and you won't. There is within each of us the capacity to do the very thing we resolve to avoid. At some point, the stallions within break down the corral, and we, for a moment, a day, or a decade, run wild. If this has happened to you, remember the seaside breakfast. When this happens to you, remember the seaside breakfast. Then he ends this way. Jesus still gives what he gave Peter, complete and total restoration. Meaning, brothers and sisters, Jesus still does for us what he did for Peter. How he restored Peter, he will restore us. How he made Peter useful again, he will make us useful again. As he wiped the slate clean for Peter, brought him back to that place, that starting point, he will do the same for us. That's the good grace and love of our Savior for us, his undeserving sheep. And yet that is how amazing our Savior is. That is what he does for us today. I pray today that if you are far from him, that you would understand you're the one that moved. He hasn't. And he is calling you back to himself. He's calling you to dine with him. The the breakfast is set up as the choir saying today, dine with him. Come meet with him. It's a beautiful picture of fellowship. That's what Jesus is saying. Come to me. Come to me. I will never turn you away. And that's the beautiful way to end this today, brothers and sisters. If you ever come to Jesus with a heart of humility, he will never, ever, ever turn you away. Ever turn you away. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. i are going to call Brother Frank and the musicians forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray together. Father, we just rejoice in, Jesus, your restoration, what you do in the life of sinners of which we are. And how, Lord, we, we are prone to wonder. Our hearts are prone to grow cold. We are prone to just like Peter, deny you, maybe with our words or maybe with our, our actions. And yet the hope that Peter found can also be ours. Oh, how you long to forgive us. You long to restore us. You long to bring us back in. I pray today for anyone who is in this room that is far from you, that today would be a day that they draw near. That we will remember the gospel isn't that we see our sin and we run from you. The gospel is we see our sin, but because of what you did for our sin through your son, we run to you. Help us to do that this moment and this time. In Jesus' name, amen.